This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 152nd edition of the program. Today is July 19th, and this episode of the podcast is brought to you by our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors, and that includes Alan Burdick, Alan Ricks, Alan C. Faust, Brian Barnett, Comic Book Girl 19, Daniel Kohler, DeFossi, John Francois, probably butchered that, Jackson Gray, and Jacob Haynes. So thanks so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to support the podcast, you can visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's episode, I'll provide you with an update to the Mueller investigation now that he's indicted 12 Russians that allegedly hacked the DNC and DCCC. We'll also talk about Sasha Baron Cohen and how he duped Republicans into admitting just how extreme they are on the issue of gun reform. Additionally, Bernie Sanders invited CEOs of major American corporations to a town hall with workers and none of them showed up. Surprise, surprise. We'll talk about that and also a Democrat dances to Drake to get millennials excited about voting. DNC members are staging a revolt against a plan to reduce superdelegates. Joe Manchin and Claire McCaskill are revolting themselves against Chuck Schumer when it comes to the issue of Brett Kavanaugh. Ajit Pai is seemingly caving to public pressure on some issues, surprisingly. And also, the Californian Democratic Party overwhelmingly endorsed Dianne Feinstein's opponent, Kevin DeLeon, in a stunning repudiation of her conservatism. And when it comes to New York's gubernatorial race, Cynthia Nixon has been hammering Andrew Cuomo's corruption in a really effective way. So that's what we got on the agenda for today's episode. Enjoy the show! Last week, special counsel Robert Mueller issued the first set of indictments directly related to Russia's alleged hack of the DNC servers. Now, as you could have expected, I do have quite a bit to say about this particular issue, but before I give you my take on this, I do want to dive into the details because I do think that this indictment is... It's very thorough. It talks about a sophisticated effort of Russian military operatives to hack into the DNC and the DCCC. So before I give you my take on this issue, I do want to at least first establish the details of this particular story. So as Politico reports, special counsel Robert Mueller indicted 12 Russian military officials on Friday and accused them of hacking into two Democratic Party computer systems to sabotage the 2016 presidential election. Election. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein announced the indictment, filed in federal district court in Washington just days before a scheduled Monday summit in Helsinki between President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin. U.S. intelligence agencies have assessed that Putin ordered a Russian effort to manipulate the 2016 election 
in Trump's favor. Rosenstein said the Russians stole and released Democratic documents after planting malicious computer codes in the network of the Democratic National Committee, as well as the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. The Russians also illegally downloaded data related to some 500,000 voters from a state database he charged. So that's kind of the broad overview of what this indictment asserts, but I read the indictment, it's very thorough, and I do think that it's important that we dive a little bit deeper and go over the indictment itself. So according to the indictment, quote, Russia used a variety of means to hack the email accounts of volunteers and employees of the U.S. presidential campaign of Hillary Clinton. So we'll stop right there because Mueller is explicitly saying that the intention of this hack is specifically to target Hillary Clinton and damage her campaign. So that's the first allegation that I do think is really important. Additionally, Russia hacked into the DNC and the DCCC computer network, and they implanted malware that allowed them to steal data from both of those networks. Now, using what's known as X-Agent malware, they planted that on a minimum of 10 DCCC computers, and by doing so, they were able to obtain login credentials of DCCC employees and stole their data using said credentials. Now, they also used malware to monitor the activity of DCCC employees, and them utilizing this malware specifically led to them getting access into the DNC network, and they ultimately infiltrated a total of 33 computers at the DNC headquarters, which, of course, as you all know, led to them stealing documents and internal emails that were released during the 2016 election. Now, in total, they compressed multiple gigabytes worth of data, and they transferred those documents back to their own servers using malware known as X-Tunnel to move said documents through an encrypted channels. Now, the indictment also alleges, this is another pretty big part, that Russian conspirators actually used fictitious online personas such as Guccifer 2.0 to release the information, and they also created domains such as DC Leaks using cryptocurrency to directly publish and disseminate some of their findings. So, there's a lot. There's really an abundance of details that explains specifically how Russians were able to thoroughly infiltrate the DNC and the DCCC systems. But what the indictment does not allege is, one, that any votes were changed, and two, that Donald Trump colluded with Russia in any way to target the DNC and the DCCC. So that's essentially the facts of the story. Now, I do want to jump ahead a couple of days to this summit between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, because expectedly, Vladimir Putin does deny these allegations. Now, remember that this indictment specifically cites the Kremlin itself as directing these military officers to carry out this hack on the DNC and DCCC. But Vladimir Putin denied these allegations as we all predicted he would, but he did specifically state that he did favor Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. Take a look. Do you want Legal President framework. Trump to win the election? And did you direct any of your officials to help him do that? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Because he talked about bringing the U.S.-Russia relationship back to normal. Now, instinctively, I can see why some individuals are pointing out that this gives us a motive for Vladimir Putin to want to carry out this hack 
on the DNC. However, that case isn't as compelling when you consider that he actually expressed a preference for Obama as well back in 2012. Now, this comment in support of Obama came after Mitt Romney called Russia America's number one geopolitical foe, to which Putin publicly stated that Obama would be easier to work with than Romney. But nonetheless, individuals had hoped that at this joint summit between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, that Donald Trump, at a minimum, would at least unequivocally denounce Russia's alleged meddling in the 2016 election, and Donald Trump did not do that, um, not even the bare minimum. He simply deflected. That being said, all I can do is ask the question. My people came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be, but I really do want to see the server. Uh, but I have uh, I have confidence in both parties. I, I really believe that this will probably go on for a while, but I don't think it can go on without finding out what happened to the server. What happened to the servers of the Pakistani gentleman that worked on the DNC? Where are those servers? They're missing. Where are they? What happened to Hillary Clinton's emails? 33,000 emails, gone, just gone. I think in Russia they wouldn't be gone so easily. I think it's a disgrace that we can't get Hillary Clinton's 33,000 emails. So I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. And what he did is an incredible offer. He offered to have the people working on the case come and work with their investigators with respect to the 12 people. I think that's an incredible offer. So obviously, he's walking on eggshells, he's choosing his words very carefully, and he's trying to deflect. Now, it's important that if you want to learn more about this, you watch my 25-minute long breakdown of the Mueller investigation because I actually pointed out how deflection has been the go-to tactic for Donald Trump since this investigation started. Now, after this summit, Donald Trump was criticized widely by both sides, not just Democrats, not just Republicans, but Fox News, the propaganda wing of the Republican Party, actually criticized Donald Trump here. Now, this led to him kind of walking back his statements that he made during this joint conference saying, look, when I said that, I don't know why Russia would meddle in the 2016 election. What I really meant to say was, I don't know why they wouldn't, meaning that they are in fact culpable. But if you actually listen to what he said and you, you get the context, well, he was heading towards that assumption that Russia didn't meddle. So that's why I don't believe Donald Trump is being genuine when he states that he misspoke. I think that he saw the backlash he received from everyone and he decided to walk back those comments. Now, look, I, I want to share my thoughts now. That's basically the broad overview. That's the Cliff Notes version of the indictment itself and the events that followed soon after with this summit in Helsinki. My thoughts are more scattered. I don't have a concise takeaway on this specific issue, but I just kind of want to throw some thoughts out there. Now, first and foremost, here's what I will say about this. Let's just accept, I know that there are individuals that watch this show who are skeptical of the details itself and the assessment from intelligence officials. Let's just accept and assume 
that this indictment is 100% correct. Even though we haven't seen the specific evidence and we just have details, I do think it is persuasive. But let's all assume for argument's sake that it is a fact and we all know that Russia did in fact hack into the DNC and the DCCC. My main concern is that the solutions that have been proposed to this alleged hack aren't necessarily anything that would solve the problem of Russia hacking into our database in the first place. So if you see that a hostile foreign power has hacked into the database of the DNC and the DCCC and they may likely do it in the future or potentially the RNC, here's what you do. If I'm a lawmaker in the United States, I immediately propose a bill to increase cybersecurity. I propose a bill that also includes a provision that moves us to paper ballots in all 50 states. We move away from these private-owned vote tallying machines, and since they can't be trusted, since we don't know if those machines have been infiltrated or compromised, we move away from those machines, and additionally, we not just increase cybersecurity, but we have all employees of both parties undergo training. DNC, DCCC, and RNC staffers, they undergo training to make sure that they are aware of what emails are suspicious and what makes them vulnerable. We make them aware of the vulnerabilities associated with them not changing their password frequently. We make them aware that making their password password isn't the smartest way to protect their data. I mean, when I entered the PhD program at my school, we underwent a brief training seminar. It was only like 20, 30 minutes, but we, we basically had to learn how to protect ourselves against phishing. So, I mean, if, if college campuses are doing this and they are aware of the threat that spear phishing campaigns cause, then certainly we have to expect our political parties to arm their staffers with the same knowledge so they can protect against potential hackers, both foreign and domestic. Now, that's what I would propose as a solution. Now, the problem that I'm seeing and the concern that I have specifically is that we don't really see any lawmakers proposing this as a solution or what I think would be a solution, right? Because I don't know, but I think that something like this or something along those lines of increasing cybersecurity would be important. But what they're saying is the solution to this problem is for Donald Trump to be tough on Russia. Now, the problem with that being a solution to this problem is that most of these same individuals correctly allege that Donald Trump is an impulsive buffoon who's incapable of acting like an adult. He's either hot or he's cold. There's really no middle ground. So I don't trust that Donald Trump is an individual that's capable of walking this fine line between sufficiently holding Russia accountable for this hack and not also simultaneously escalating tensions between the U.S. and Russia in the process. But all that we've seen from our elected officials is they're calling on Donald Trump to be tougher on Russia. Now, I don't really know what that looks like ultimately, but I don't trust these elected officials because they're claiming that their concern with this Russian hack comes from a place of them wanting to protect democracy. But both parties have demonstrated that they don't really care about democracy. If Republicans truly cared about protecting democracy, they would immediately 
start denouncing Citizens United unequivocally, but they don't. They defend Citizens United. They'd stop carrying out these voter ID laws that specifically disenfranchise people of color in this country. They'd stop gerrymandering, but they're, they're not doing that. And similarly, if Democrats cared about protecting democracy, what would they do? Well, they would end superdelegates entirely, not just reduce their influence, but end superdelegates. They would stop disenfranchising independent voters, and they would unequivocally denounce when the DNC also subverted democracy in 2016. But these are not honest actors. These are individuals that are using this Russian story to push their own agenda. I get that there are genuine and honest actors who simply want to make sure that we hold Russia accountable so they won't do this again in the future, but there are other individuals, namely elected officials, who aren't looking at this from the perspective of protecting democracy. They're just using this as a means of promoting their own agenda, and unfortunately, that agenda is probably one of escalating tensions between the United States and Russia, and they're doing this not because they care about democracy. They don't think we should be tougher on Russia to protect democracy. They're doing it to appease their donors in the defense industry because we have a war economy. So when you ramp up tensions between the U.S. and Russia, what happens? Defense stocks increase. Think about what happened when Donald Trump met with Kim Jong-un in Singapore. Defense stocks fell by what, like 5% at the mere prospect of peace. So keeping that pressure high on Russia bodes really well for donors in both parties in the defense industry. So there's this really nefarious underlying agenda that I'm worried about here. Of course, this is all just speculation, but we've been lied to by these politicians. We know that they're taking money from special interests who profit off of war. So I don't think that they're being genuine here because as I stated, if they truly care about democracy, there are steps you can take to make sure we reduce the influence of future meddling by any hostile foreign power. Now, additionally, individuals are skeptical of the assessment and analyses released from U.S. intelligence agencies because growing up, individuals from my generation, we were lied to, brazenly so, by the intelligence community. What did they tell us again about Iraq? They told us that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and it was possible that Iraq would supply terrorists with these WMDs. We were lied to. So skepticism about the intelligence community doesn't make us unreasonable. It makes us mindful of history because those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And can you guess who was trying to sell us this Iraq WMD narrative? Robert Mueller. As uh, Director Tenet has pointed out, Secretary Powell presented evidence last week that Baghdad has failed to disarm its weapons of mass destruction, willfully attempting to evade and deceive the international community. Our particular concern is that Saddam Hussein may supply terrorists with biological, chemical, or radiological material. So given the U.S. intelligence community's history of lying to the American people repeatedly, I think a healthy dose of skepticism about anything they say is warranted. 
it's reasonable, it's warranted, you should be skeptical. Now, with that being said, I have a nuanced view on this. I don't think we should be so skeptical to where we just operate backwards from the conclusion that anything they say is a lie. I think we have to be open to evidence and new details and facts. Now, understand that another issue that I have with this story is that the rhetoric has been insane. I mean, Saying that it's been hyperbolic is one thing, but I think we're bordering on insane here because individuals are characterizing this as a, quote, attack. Now, the implication is that if we were attacked, well, people would have died. 9-11 was an attack. Pearl Harbor was an attack. But people are saying that Russian intelligence operatives hacking into the DNC and DCCC, well, that really was like Pearl Harbor. And that's insane. That's insane. So certainly, I think that there are individuals with a very measured response to this. I think Rebel HQ's Emma Viglin has a very perfectly reasonable response. You know, she talks about how, yes, it's true that we have intervened in Russian elections before. We've overthrown democracies, and um, we, can, we can accept that. But we can also accept that Russia did, in fact hack into the DNC and the DCCC, at least given what the intelligence community has told us. There are people who have a measured response who don't want warmongering. With that being said, not just lawmakers, but other individuals are using Russia to kind of promote their own agenda. If you look at mainstream media, MSNBC is using this, not because I think they care about democracy or Russia hacking into the DNC, but because this is something that really fosters fear among the American people. And fear is a great ratings booster. So there's a lot of dishonest actors that make individuals like Michael Tracy, Jimmy Dore, Kyle Kalinske, and myself skeptical because I don't know what the end goal is here. So when you say you want him to be tough on Putin, I mean, how antagonistic do you want him to get? How combative against Russia do you want him to become? He already bombed Syria, which is Russia's ally, and I'm worried that if we continuously push him and exert this pressure on him, he might do something overly belligerent that could certainly dramatically escalate tensions between the United States and Russia. Now understand that he is being overly deferential to Putin. When you see that meeting, it's clear he was walking on eggshells probably to appease Putin, but I think that the difference is when you bomb someone's ally, it's easy to do that if Trump and Putin are on different sides of the globe. But when you look someone in the eye, it's a lot more difficult to be combative and, you know, uh, be argumentative. So maybe that's what it was. I don't know. But individuals who are basically saying, oh, well, this proves he was Putin's puppet. I think that that rhetoric kind of hurts your argument. If you want people to be persuaded by this Russia argument, and I think there's a lot of details here that point to Russia, in fact, being the culprit in the DNC and DCCC hack, then you have to stop using hyperbolic rhetoric like that. Now, another thing that I want to say about this is, okay, let's say Russia did do it. Let's all accept that. Individuals who aren't persuaded accept that Russia did that. Well, what does that mean for the DNC? They still tried to sabotage Bernie Sanders. Are we just going to let the DNC and Debbie Wasserman Schultz and DNC staffers get away with it? I mean, they proved Russia did it, so now what do we do? They're not doubting the authenticity of those emails. They're saying these are real emails that were stolen. So there's been no accountability on behalf of the DNC, but the same people who don't think the DNC should be held accountable are saying that Russia should be held accountable. Now, I get that there's a difference between 
the Democratic Party rigging a primary against its own candidates and a foreign hostile power trying to meddle in our elections. I get that there's a substantive and meaningful difference there, but at the same time, are they just going to get to um, get away with what they did to Bernie Sanders? They defrauded voters. They may have done it legally, but it still was unethical. It still was immoral. So I think a lot of Russiagate doubters are still frustrated about the fact that this Russian story has been used to distract us from what the DNC did. In revealing what the DNC did to Bernie Sanders, were they trying to foster outrage? Sure, but with that being said, they couldn't have done anything to foster outrage had the DNC not been rigging the primary and trying to sabotage Bernie Sanders in the first place. And second of all, we already knew that the DNC was probably conspiring against Bernie Sanders, so the emails really just shed light on the extent to which they did this and the depths that they were willing to stoop to to defeat Bernie Sanders in favor of Hillary Clinton. So I think that outrage was already there and Hillary Clinton was just a poor candidate. But at the end of the day, I don't really think you can ever truly gauge just how much this did in fact influence the election. But with that being said, I've kind of argued from the side of the Russiagate doubters. Now I do want to acknowledge some of the more persuasive arguments people who are in favor of Russiagate make. Because I think that's also important too. My view on this is very nuanced and I do want to make sure that I provide deference to progressive allies who do think this story is important. So first of all, I do get that still, even though what the DNC did was problematic, it was more than problematic, it was downright immoral, but even in revealing what they did... Russia did, in fact, create this information imbalance where they revealed dirt on the DNC, but no dirt on the RNC, which it was probably there. If they released the RNC's emails, you'd probably likely find individuals within the RNC conspiring against Trump towards the beginning of his campaign, because we all know that there was some shady things going on to try to defeat Donald Trump when he was, in fact, polling really well and winning debates. So I get that, and I do think that organizations that supplied us with these emails, they should have done more to dig up dirt on the RNC, because I don't think you can say that you care about voters making an educated choice if you're withholding information, if the goal is to educate voters and allow them to cast their vote with as much information as possible, then wouldn't the logical conclusion be that we need to see dirt on both sides? Now, personally, I think that these emails from both the DNC staffers and RNC staffers should be made public after the election is over. I get not wanting to release it during the election because they have specific strategies that they don't want to reveal to their opponents, but this this still should be made public. Because as far as I'm concerned, if you are working for one of the two parties, even though those parties are technically private political organizations, well... Either one of those parties always wins the presidential election, so it absolutely is in the public's interest to know what these individuals are saying and if they're doing anything particularly shady, and in this case, we know the DNC was. And I do get that people on the progressive left that care about this are worried about Russia potentially doing this again in the future because our intelligence agencies are still saying that Russia is in fact trying to do things to meddle in the election. So I get that. Democracy in America is already flawed. We don't want it to be even more flawed. But the problem is that there's been so much hyperbole and extremism with regard to this issue 
simply telling us that Russia's trying to interfere in the 2018 election doesn't mean much because what we know now about Russia's attempts to interfere range from them just releasing memes, which had zero impact, I'm sorry, releasing a meme about an arm wrestling, about Jesus arm wrestling Satan or buff Bernie memes, that had zero influence. Uh, releasing dirt on the DNC that showed how they fucked over voters, sure, that could outrage people, even though I think they were already outraged, but we don't know the extent to which they're doing it again. Now, also, I don't want to imply that I'm against the Mueller investigation. At this point, Mueller has uncovered really serious crimes, not just of Russian officials and intelligence operatives, but from people within Donald Trump's administration, like Rick Gates, Paul Manafort, Michael Flynn, and George Papadopoulos. So it's laughable at this point, I think, for individuals to call it a witch hunt, because it's not. He's actually uncovering crimes. So at the end of the day, I, I wish there was a nice summary I can give to you, but there's no conclusion. My thoughts on this are very nuanced, and I think we all need to have a nuanced take on this matter, but um, I think the discussion surrounding this has been mostly problematic, and I'm worried that this issue... It's it's taking up so much time in mainstream media that other issues aren't getting covered. Flint's not getting covered. Healthcare isn't getting covered. So certainly, if you think this is important, then you still need to have a measured approach to Russiagate. Cover it, but don't let other really important political stories fall by the wayside. If you think Trump colluded with Russia, even though there hasn't been evidence, don't Ignore the collusion he's done with other foreign governments like Israel or Michael Flynn's collusion with Turkey. I guess my, my overall takeaway, if I can reduce everything I said down to a sentence, is for both sides to be careful and nuanced. And that's all I'll say about this. So by now, most of you know about Sasha Baron Cohen's new show on Showtime called Who is America? And it premiered just this last Sunday, and it was absolutely outstanding. Bernie Sanders was actually featured in one of the segments, and I won't spoil it for you because it was a great episode, but there is one segment I do want to talk about because it is important, specifically because it does give us insight into just how low Republicans are willing to stoop, and more specifically, how radical the party has become. So what Sasha Baron Cohen's character did here was he got Republicans to agree to an absolutely insane policy idea. Now, I can't show you the clip, but I will give you a summary of it. So basically, he posed as an Israeli anti-terrorist expert who tried to convince right-wing gun advocates to support the idea of arming students instead of teachers. And he wasn't just talking about arming high schoolers, but actual toddlers. So the premise of the segment was to see how many Republicans would support a supposed kindergartens program where you just straight up arm children as young as four years old. And he actually got Philip Van Cleve to create a video where they market guns to toddlers. And he also got the executive director of Gun Owners of America, a gun lobbyist, Larry Pratt, to admit that arming certain gifted children and even toddlers would be a great idea. Now, he also duped other politicians into supporting this idea by making them read a pro-arming toddler message off of a teleprompter, and that includes Trent Lott, Dana Rohrenbacher, Joe Wilson, and Joe Walsh. And here's just some of the things he got them to say that I found um, definitely interesting. 
Quote, our founding fathers did not put an age limit on the Second Amendment. Quote, in less than a month, a first grader can become a first grenader. Now, they were reading this off of a teleprompter, and they didn't stop to think, maybe this isn't something that I should be vocally advocating for. They read it. Um, also, toddlers are pure, uncorrupted by fake news or homosexuality. They don't worry if it's politically correct to shoot a mentally deranged gunman. They'll just do it. Again, they read this off of a teleprompter. Um, I don't know if any red flags went up in their mind. You see clearly this guy promoting a gun marketed for a toddler. I mean, it's just craziness. But um, my favorite here, this is what he got them to say. Children under five also have elevated levels of the pheromone Blink-182 Blink produced by part of the liver known as the Rita Aura. This allows nerve reflexes to travel along the Cardi B neural pathway <laughs> to the Wiz Khalifa 40% faster, saving time and saving lives. That part was just, it was pure gold. I mean, the level to which Sasha Baron Cohen is able to troll these people, it, it's God level. Now, the last quote is... Happy shooting, kids. So understand, he got them to say these crazy things, and the way that he sold them this meeting in the first place was saying that he was going to give them a particular award for being friendly to Israel. It was a friend of Israel reward, and he presented them with this story about how a four-year-old in Israel had saved the lives of himself and his uh, peers by shooting a gunman. Now, because of that story, he was trying to convince them that maybe this would be a policy that you should try implementing in America, and regardless if they supported the policy idea or not, they advocated for it by reading off of the teleprompter. It's kind of like that scene in Anchorman where they got him to say, go fuck yourselves by just putting it on the teleprompter. I'm Veronica Corningstone. And I'm Ron Burgundy. Go fuck yourself, San Diego. That's how mindless these people are. And one of the only individuals that wasn't duped by this was Representative Matt Gates, who said, look, politicians, we don't usually just advocate for a policy by reading it off of a teleprompter. And then, of course, you know, the scene cut to... A bunch of politicians reading it off of a teleprompter. So I think that this is really important because understand that we've been having this ongoing discussion in this country about just how radical the left is with the electoral victory of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the rise of Bernie Sanders. We're talking about how communism, literal communism, according to some right-wingers, is ascendant in the United States. This admitted communist that just won the primary in New York, she's a communist. No. The discussion about radicalism that we should be having is not about the left. It's about the right. If they're willing to go as far as openly advocating for us to arm toddlers, there's something fundamentally radical about this party. If I were reading something off of a teleprompter, I would get maybe only so far to where I stopped and said, look, I'm not going to advocate for this. This is crazy. How can you state happy shooting kids with a straight face? And not just stop and say, I'm not going to read this. I don't, I don't support these views. You're making me say these things that I'm against, and I'm not going to say it. So is it the case that these Republicans support arming toddlers? I mean, they were duped into saying it. 
It says a lot about their characters and how radical they really are. Now, Joe Walsh is one of the individuals that was duped, and when somebody asked him on Twitter, Kindergartians, really man? Joe Walsh responded by tweeting, what can I say, Bradley? Sasha Baron Cohen got me. Do I believe kindergartners should be armed? Hell no, but it's on me. Sasha fooled me good. Flew me out to DC for some made-up Friend of Israel award. I gotta live with it. And he also said it was my screw-up. Now again, he got you to read Happy Shooting Kids off of a teleprompter, and he got you to say, within the span of a month, a first grader can become a first grenader. He did more than just fool you. He exposed an underlying radical feeling you have about guns in this country. Republicans believe in gun anarchy. They won't even endorse the idea of universal background checks, which is supported by 97% of the American population. That's how radical they've become. Now, I don't know if they personally feel this radical or personally advocate for gun anarchy, but since it's what their donors, the NRA, Gun Owners of America, want, that's what they're pushing for, effectively, is gun anarchy. So, um, he explained himself a little bit more on CNN, so here's that clip. He gets people to say stupid things because he lies to them. In my case, he flew me out to Washington, D.C. They knew I was a big supporter of Israel's, and they presented me with this award as one of Israel's greatest friends. Found out later the whole thing was a ruse, and it was a ruse probably just to get me to say some stupid things. After they conducted an interview, they, they had me read off of a teleprompter talking about some of the innovative products that Israel's invented. And, and then they had me read about this four-year-old child in Israel who, when a terrorist entered his classroom, somehow he grabbed the terrorist's gun and held the terrorist at bay. And, and that was, a, a, I guess, an example of how Israel trains and arms preschool kids on how to use firearms. And boy, shouldn't we do that in America? And so I'm reading this, Michael, off of a teleprompter, and I'm thinking to myself, well, this is kind of crazy, but it is Israel, and <laughs> Israel's strong on defense. Um, we found out the whole thing was made up. There is no TV station. There was no award. And it's pretty clear that, that Sasha Baron Cohen wanted me to say something pretty crazy about guns, like in America, we ought to arm preschool kids. Did an alarm go off in your head, Congressman? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it did. But again, Michael, it, it was too late because I, I, I was in the middle of this 15-minute thing talking about all the great things Israel does. So the alarm went off, but the alarm really went off about 3 o'clock that next morning when I said, oh, my God, I've been duped. And then we right. hired an attorney. We looked into it. And it, we found out pretty quickly that it was this new special on Showtime that he was producing, Sasha was producing, and we found out, as you said, Michael, I wasn't alone. Dick Cheney, Sarah Palin, a bunch of us were duped. Now, I'm glad that he's taking this, you know, lightly, it's, it's all in good fun, he admits that he was duped, but I think that this is more important than him just duping over Republicans. I don't get how you can be duped into advocating for a policy as radical as arming toddlers. You can't be duped into saying something like that unless you are an idiot. I mean, Philip Cleave marketed guns to children, and if you watched this clip, 
there was a little uh, a teddy bear with a pull string that they were marketing towards 12 to 24 month babies i mean <laughs> there's something again fundamentally radical about an individual that you can dupe into advocating for arming toddlers and i think that we need to start having a conversation a meaningful conversation about right-wing radicals i don't want to hear from the party that marches with tiki torches about how radical the left has become. The conversation has got to be about right-wing radicalism because a left-winger who is a democratic socialist is only radical insofar as Republicans have moved the Overton window so far to the right that anything left of center is radical entirely. So they're the radicals, and I think that this clip reveals a lot about their true desires for gun anarchy in America. So, there's been a number of stories regarding the FCC lately that may lead me to believe that public pressure might be starting to influence Ajit Pai because at this point, he's under investigation for corruption by the FCC's Inspector General. He has no political capital because he spent it all repealing net neutrality, so... He doesn't have much room to implement drastic regulatory changes at this point because the public is watching and they're largely dissatisfied with what he's been doing. So the first story I want to talk about that kind of leads me to this conclusion is that on July 10th, a story broke about the FCC wanting to charge consumers that had complaints about internet service providers $225 just to hear them out. As Gizmodo's Tom McKay reports, according to The Verge, the FCC is now mulling a plan that could ensure its staff will only review complaints against telecoms after the complainant has paid a $225 fee. So what exactly does this mean? Well, up until this point, if you wanted to file a complaint against a company like Comcast, AT&T, or Verizon, there were two ways you can do this. You could file a formal complaint or an informal complaint. Now, a formal complaint would cost $225, and the article describes it as kind of being like a court proceeding, so they would definitely take action. Or you could just file an informal complaint and the FCC would look into it and they still might take action. However, the FCC proposed a change to informal complaints that would basically make them useless. So if you actually wanted the FCC to review a complaint that you had about a company like Verizon, and more importantly, if you wanted them to take action, you'd effectively be forced to spend $225 in order to file a formal complaint. So they made the informal complaint option basically useless. Now, clearly, this plan was crafted at the behest of internet service providers because if there's no complaints, then Ajit Pai's repeal of net neutrality would further be legitimized because he could present the lack of complaints as evidence that his repeal wasn't actually harmful to consumers. So we can say, look, we repealed net neutrality X amount of time ago and we've had no complaints. So it's it's clearly not having the disastrous impact that uh you know proponents of net neutrality claimed it would have. So obviously it's an outrageous proposition because you're a government agency. We pay your checks with our tax dollars. It's your job to hear our complaints. 
But instead, the agency has become so rogue, so detached from the American public that in order for them to even take action at all, we'd have to pay them $225 just to do their job. It's ridiculous, but thankfully the backlash was so swift and so severe that the FCC reportedly dropped talks of this plan the very next day. As Wired's Clint Finley reports, the Federal Communications Commission has reportedly dropped a proposed change in how it handles complaints that critics argued could have left consumers with fewer avenues to resolve problems with telecommunications carriers like AT&T and Verizon. One reason the critics saw ill will behind the proposal, the FCC last year declined to release the full text of informal complaints it received about net neutrality ahead of the agency's to jettison those rules in December. The Obama-era rules banned broadband providers from blocking or discriminating against particular internet content. The FCC highlighted the lack of formal complaints about net neutrality in support of its decision to roll back the rules, but it did not address the informal complaints. In a statement, Commissioner Jessica Rosenworcel, the FCC's only Democratic commissioner, called the proposed change to the informal complaint process, quote, bonkers. And bonkers it is. So apparently there is a level of shame we can exert on the FCC that will get them to budge. Now, there was another issue that the FCC surprisingly flipped on recently. According to Harper Neidig of The Hill, Federal Communications Commission Chairman Ajit Pai said Monday that he has serious concerns about the proposed merger between Sinclair Broadcast Group and Tribune Media, a surprising move that could likely kill the controversial $3.9 billion deal. In a statement, Pai questioned the company's plans to get the deal approved by selling off some television stations and said he would propose sending the deal to be reviewed by an administrative law judge. The evidence we've received suggests that certain station divestitures that have been proposed to the FCC would allow Sinclair to control those stations in practice, even if not in name, in violation of the law, Pai said. Now make no mistake about it, this is good news. But what's interesting to me is that just a month prior, we had headlines like this from Gizmodo's AJ Dellinger. FCC reportedly planning to change rules to save Sinclair's takeover of local news before court can kill it. Now, in this article, Dellinger goes into great detail about how the FCC went above and beyond to modify the rules ahead of court hearings in order to strengthen Sinclair's legal case before they petitioned the court to approve their merger with Tribune Media. Now, the FCC's goal was to increase the limits on how many stations a broadcast company can own. So rather than capping media ownership at 39%, the FCC sought to increase that at the behest of Sinclair. But all of a sudden, we have this flip from the FCC, and now they made a move that throws this entire merger into jeopardy, inexplicably so. came out of nowhere. So the question is, after all this time, after Ajit Pai has been doing the bidding of Sinclair, unapologetically so, why the change of heart? And at face value, it may seem like Ajit Pai is motivated to stop being so brazenly corrupt because he's currently being investigated, as I stated, by the FCC's Inspector General. And this is over accusations that his agency acted to assist Sinclair. But the problem with that explanation is the timeline. Ajit Pai has been under investigation by his own agency since February of this year. 
So just this last month, he took action or wanted to take action to make regulatory changes that would make the Sinclair Tribune media merger more likely. So I don't, I don't know what's motivating here to do the right thing for once. But I will say that it is possible maybe he found something out about the investigation. Maybe he learned that the FCC's inspector general was closing in on him and was about to, you know, um, indict him for something. Um, Maybe it scared him. I don't know. But for whatever reason, the FCC is somewhat starting to cave to public pressure. And that's a good sign because it shows that we're starting to break them. And that's what we want to do. We we need to exert a constant amount of pressure on the FCC to let them know that we don't approve of what they've been doing. He repealed net neutrality. Regulatory protections that are supported by the overwhelming majority of the American people in both parties. You can't do that and just get away with it. And I think that activists that support freedom on the internet have done a phenomenal job at keeping the pressure on Ajit Pai and his agency. So that's really the only explanation that I have as to why he's doing the right thing for once. But admittedly, it's not a very satisfactory explanation. I think there's something else going on here that we don't know about. Um, And part of me is skeptical. Even though he did something to kill Sinclair, maybe it's to kind of brace us for something he may be doing that's even more fucked up. I don't know. We've seen nothing but the most corrupt and duplicitous leadership possibly ever in this agency. So anytime they do something, even if it's good, I can't help but be skeptical because that skepticism is warranted given the actions of this agency under his leadership. So I don't know. Um, Take it as a win, but be cautiously optimistic because (laughs) you never know with Ajit Pai. New York gubernatorial candidate Cynthia Nixon is running an absolutely stunning campaign. I'm just, I'm super impressed by her. She was recently endorsed by Justice Democrats. Uh, She got the endorsement of Our Revolution. And she's really going above and beyond to prove to us that she is a progressive and she is willing to stand up for bold progressive policy positions. And she's running a campaign That's undoubtedly aggressive, albeit effective. And what she's doing is she's kind of creating this blueprint that future progressive candidates should follow if they do want to effectively challenge corporate Democrats. So, first of all, she's been justifiably critical of Cuomo because he actually accepted $64,000 from Donald Trump, yet he claims to be part of the resistance, which is just laughable. Now, if he truly was a good faith actor, if he truly wanted to be part of the resistance like he says he is, he'd returned the thousands of dollars he took from Donald Trump and tell him, keep that money, I don't want anything to do with you, but instead... What has Andrew Cuomo done? He's refused to return those donations, saying, quote, I'm going to be deeply critical of him and keep the contributions. So naturally, Cynthia Nixon did what all political opponents to incumbent Democrats should do. She hit him for this, and she hit him hard. So, this is a video that she released on social media. You've also donated to several Democratic candidates. You explained away those donations saying you did that to get business-related favors. And you said recently, quote, when you give, 
They do whatever the hell you want them to do. You better believe it. I give to many people. Before this, before two months ago, I was a businessman. I give to everybody. When they call, I give. And you know what? When I need something from them, two years later, three years later, I call them. They are there for me. Uh, you know, Mr. Trump is very much a private sector builder. Um, I think uh, Donald Trump being from New York uh, is a bonus. That right there is how you challenge the corruption of corporate Democrats. That was outstanding. She's showing Donald Trump here and the reason he cited for contributing to politicians on both sides of the aisle. When I donate to them, well, I'm essentially guaranteeing that years down the road when I need something, if I call them, they're going to pick up and answer the phone. So what does that make Andrew Cuomo look like if he took $64,000 from Donald Trump? It makes him look like a puppet. So he's not part of the resistance. Andrew Cuomo is part of the problem, and Cynthia Nixon with this video is demonstrating exactly how he's part of the swamp in Washington, D.C. Now, she also recently spoke to Jacobin, and she talked about why people dislike Cuomo so much. And this is what she had to say. If you look at the lack of progressive change that's happened here in the last seven and a half years, you can lay that directly at the doorstep of Andrew Cuomo. There's a reason that the Koch brothers gave him $87,000 when he ran in 2010. Despite calling himself a Democrat, he has governed like a Republican and has handed over massive amounts of power to the Republican Party. He's allowed the Republicans in the state Senate to jerry matter their own districts. As soon as he entered office, he incentivized a group of Democratic state senators to vote in caucus with the Republicans, shoring up their majority. We've had a Democratic majority in the state Senate for more than five years, but the Republicans control that body because Andrew Cuomo has enabled and encouraged them to. It's the reason that we have so little progressive change. It's the reason we haven't become a leader in renewable energy or in campaign finance reform. It's the reason reason we haven't passed the Reproductive Health Act, Gender, Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act, the New York Dream Act, or the Liberty Act, which would protect our undocumented people from ICE. It's not just that he's given them political power, his policies are purely Republican. Upon entering office, he eliminated the bank tax. He slashed taxes on corporations. He slashed taxes on everybody earning more than 300000 a year. In seven budgets, he's cumulatively cut 25 billion out of state revenue. If he was a Republican, we would have voted him out of office a long time ago. But because he is a Democrat, the son of Mario Cuomo, and a genius at getting headlines rather than enacting change, New Yorkers have a false sense of security about how progressive our state really is because Andrew Cuomo keeps telling us so. Our campaign is saying, look at all these things that New Yorkers want that we could have had. But Andrew Cuomo hasn't fought for them and has actually empowered the other side to make sure we don't get them. So what she's saying is really important. Progressives in New York, individuals in New York who identify as progressives, they've extended so much deference to Andrew Cuomo because he has a D in front of his name, when in actuality, he's only a Democrat because he knows he has to be to get elected in New York. 
but he's served as a Republican. His actions indicate that he's a Republican. And the only reason why he labels himself as a progressive is because he could come out in favor of bold progressive policies and never have to worry about signing them into law because of the things he's done specifically to to empower the New York Republican Party. It's disgusting. Now, here's what else she said about Andrew Cuomo. He seems much more comfortable with Republicans. He doesn't campaign for Republicans, but he allows them to use his image and words in their campaign literature. He never steps in to help a Democrat secure a seat, even in a hotly contested election. He never uses any of the money available, of which he has boatloads. He's raised $31 million. He controls the New York State Democratic campaign coffers. 0.1% of that, I will say, comes from small donors. We received more small-dollar donations in a single day than he's received in seven years. He's a Democrat because he is the son of Mario Cuomo and because he is running in New York State. But he is a Republican politician who has always been about consolidating his own power rather than his adherence to any particular political ideology. Which is why, as soon as we entered the race, as you were saying previously, he's tried to desperately make himself over as a progressive. It doesn't seem like there's really anything there in terms of his identity. He's trying to capture the moment. So what she's doing is she is hammering away at his corruption. She's framing him, correctly so, as a self-serving politician that doesn't care about policy or any particular political ideology, but just cares about consolidating his own power. These individuals like Andrew Cuomo, they like having power. They like being in charge and being governor, being in these powerful positions because they get access to donors. They get access to money. They have people that look up to them. But these are not honest actors. If Andrew Cuomo cared about progressive policies, then he would actually not be governing like a Republican. But the way she described him was as a Republican politician. He's more comfortable with Republicans than he is with Democrats. So this is how you've got to hammer away at corporate Democrats. And there are some progressives like Bernie Sanders who kind of pride themselves on never running a negative campaign ad. And you see uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being a little bit more tepid in her criticism of corporate Democrats in Congress. You can't do that. We have the winning argument. These people, their worldview, their political ideology of neoliberalism, it's been discredited. They were wiped out. So we are right to criticize them. And I think we need to call them out for their corruption because it's hurting the country. It's it's crippling the Democratic Party's ability to be an effective opposition party because there's so much cronyism and corruption within the party that they can't resist. And in fact, maybe some Democrats feel more comfortable losing and being a minority party because that means they don't have to prove how progressive they are by passing progressive policies. So you need people like Cynthia Nixon to really be fierce in their criticism and not back down and call them out and attack them. Yes, I said attack them. I know that typically you want to try to stay away from political attacks, but if that criticism is meaningful and substantive, then do it. You have to hammer away at their corruption, and you have to draw clear distinctions between progressives and corporate Democrats. And that's what Cynthia Nixon is doing, and I really hope she wins. We recently had some shockingly good news come out of Californian state politics with a surprise endorsement of... 
Kevin DeLeon over Dianne Feinstein. As KQED News reports, the Californian Democratic Party has voted to endorse DeLeon over Feinstein by a gigantic landslide margin. So she only actually received 7% of the vote to endorse, with 22 votes in total, and De Leon received 65% with 217 votes, and 29% of total votes opted for no endorsement at all. So this is actually a surprisingly bold move by the Californian Democratic Party. It really is. Now, personally, will I say that I'm still disappointed that Alison Hartson or David Hildebrand lost? Yes. <laughs> it it really honestly took me a while to get over those individuals because I think that they were unapologetically progressive. But with that being said, if I lived in the state of California, would I vote for Kevin DeLeon over Dianne Feinstein? Yes enthusiastically so I would. Even though Kevin DeLeon does take corporate PAC money and is willing to play nice with the establishment, he does support policies like Medicare for All, and he actually promised to co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill if he does get elected, and he also supports policies like tuition-free public college. So there's an abundance of reasons to suggest that he's much better than Diane Feinstein. He's not necessarily a Bernie-crat. I mean, kind of, you can make the case. But he's more of a Democrat like Elizabeth Warren. So, he's not on Bernie's level, but he's certainly not on Diane Feinstein's level. And she's just a right-wing Democrat. I don't think you can describe her as anything other than a right-wing Democrat. Throughout her career, she's been a right-winger. She's essentially been a Republican, and she comes from a progressive state. So I don't, I don't get why Californians have accepted this conservative as their state senator for so long. But if you voted for Kevin DeLeon, even if you wanted Allison Hartson or David Hildebrand to win, that's a reasonable vote. It's, it's the practical thing to do to get rid of this establishment Democrat that isn't serving anyone but herself. Now, here's the thing. Even though DeLeon now has the party's endorsement, Dianne Feinstein still has the advantage because, one, she has more name recognition and she's also outspending him by a significant margin. So, she's raised nearly $15 million to Kevin DeLeon's $1.1 million, which is gigantic. So, I mean, I can't in good faith tell you to donate your hard-earned cash to someone like Kevin DeLeon, who takes corporate PAC money, because my argument has always been, look, if you're going to raise money from large multinational corporations, bug them for money. Don't bug us for money. Because I can't be guaranteed that you'll represent us. I can't be guaranteed that you won't betray us if you're elected. But I will say that I think it's important that we lean on him in order to defeat Dianne Feinstein, and that means maybe if you live in California, doing some canvassing or phone banking for Kevin DeLeon, because even if he's not perfect, he's certainly better than Dianne Feinstein, he's more progressive-ish, he's someone who I look at as a potential ally, someone who we could put pressure on that might cave in the in the event we needed him to support a particular policy whereas Diane Feinstein let's say hypothetically speaking Bernie Sanders becomes president Democrats get a supermajority in the house and the senate she'd be someone that probably wouldn't budge in the event Medicare for all came up for a vote 
Kevin DeLeon, however, knows he'd have to support that. And I think he would be more willing to listen to us than someone like her. So this really is a bold move. And I do want to give the Californian Democratic Party credit where it's due because voting to endorse someone who isn't necessarily an outsider, but isn't the establishment's preferred choice. That's that's pretty big. So it shows that the party in California at least knows or has has some inkling of the direction they should be headed in. So that gives me some hope. And again, I, I get if you're still disappointed that it's Kevin DeLeon that's facing her in the runoff and not someone like Allison Hartson or David Hildebrand. I hear you 100%. But still, I think that if we got rid of Feinstein in favor of DeLeon, that'd still be a pretty progressive gain. And given just how far right the party has become, Senate Democrats, that is, he would probably be one of the most progressive Democrats in the Senate. Now, I get that the bar for that is pretty low, but it's still important that we improve our odds of getting progressive policy codified into law by getting someone who's measurably more progressive on most issues than Dianne Feinstein, who's just straight up a right-wing Democrat. She has signaled to us that she's, you know, going to be a little bit more open about issues like marijuana legalization, but come on, we all know she's just doing this to compete with the challenge she's faced from the left. So don't go with the fake progressive like Dianne Feinstein. Go with someone who is more progressive than her. I don't. I, I guess you could say Kevin DeLeon is a progressive. He's not as progressive as someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but he's better than Feinstein. Um, and if I were in California, I'd vote for him over her for sure. The DNC will soon be voting on whether or not they will reduce the influence superdelegates have on presidential nominations. Now, even though they should be eliminating superdelegates altogether, well, there were still a number of DNC members that are outraged at the prospect of them even taking a step in the right direction. And as a result, some DNC members are now staging a revolt against this plan. Now, as David Siders of Politico reports, a band of Democratic National Committee superdelegates is staging a revolt against a Bernie Sanders-endorsed plan to reduce their influence in the presidential nominating process, mounting a long-shot bid to block the measure when the DNC meets in Chicago next month. If we don't have a vote, then what good are we, said William Owen, a superdelegate and DNC member from Tennessee who has been contacting fellow DNC members ahead of the Chicago gathering especially in the South. In Chicago, this will not be rubber-stamped. Bob Mulholland, a superdelegate and DNC member from California who has been in talks with superdelegates in the West, said, The more DNC members realize that this so-called reform is to throw them off the floor, I think there will be a lot of complaints in Chicago. Representative Jerry Connolly, who accused Perez of flinching in the face of criticism of the superdelegate process, called the proposal a craven capitulation to what Perez describes as a perception of elitism. Connolly, like other opponents of the plan, 
argued that disenfranchising the elected leadership of the party would disconnect elected leaders from the party's presidential ticket, ultimately weakening its prospects in 2020. DNC officials were preparing to undertake an outreach effort ahead of the gathering in Chicago to win support for the recommendation. Jim Roosevelt, co-chairman of the Rules and Bylaws Committee, acknowledged the DNC will be asking superdelegates to vote against their self-interest, but he said the committee will impress on delegates that the proposal is the best plan to deal with the perception about elites influencing the nomination. Now, according to individuals who are following this issue more closely, it does seem as though this effort will ultimately fail. However, I do want to get to some of the quotes here because I think they really speak to just how out of touch they are. So it was Jerry Connolly, representative, who states that this proposal is, quote, a craven capitulation to what Perez describes as a perception of elitism. There's no perception of elitism. It's just elitism. Superdelegates have a vote that is 10,000 times more powerful than our votes. If that's not elitism, then I don't know what is. And the problem with superdelegates is that they have enough power to where if they disagree with the choice we make, well, they currently have the power to undermine the will of voters. So individuals in this article, they talk about them being disenfranchised. Connolly said that this is them disenfranchising the elected leadership of the party. So if you're not able to disenfranchise voters, that's you being disenfranchised. <laughs> I mean, imagine if all of a sudden Russia democratized and there was a law passed saying that Vladimir Putin's goons could no longer stuff the ballot boxes. If he were pissed off about that and threw a temper tantrum at that new law, we'd all laugh at him and make fun of him. But yet, Democrats are crying about them not being able to undermine the will of voters, and there's not universal condemnation. There's not people in the mainstream media making fun of them and calling them out. I mean, they're acting like rebellious teenagers or, or worse, petulant children, really, because their ability to influence the outcome of elections in a brazenly undemocratic way will be reduced. Now, again, this plan is already a compromise because they're not eliminating superdelegates. They need to be gone. Republicans don't have superdelegates. Why does a party named the Democratic Party with democracy in their name have superdelegates? It's inherently undemocratic. And yet, they're the ones who feel as though they've been wronged. You haven't been wronged. I mean, think back to 2016. Not to relitigate 2016 because I'm tired of doing that, but look at New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders beat Hillary Clinton by, what, a 22-point margin? Well, at the end of the day, when you take into account pledged and superdelegates, she still got more delegates because more superdelegates from New Hampshire endorsed her and they agreed to vote for her instead of Bernie Sanders. What kind of bullshit is that? So... You do have a vote. They're acting as if their vote is being taken away. But if superdelegates didn't exist, if you weren't a superdelegate, you'd still have one vote. One person, one vote. You'd have the same amount of power as us. But that's the thing. 
They don't want the same amount of power that we have because they are elites. They think that they're better than us. They think that they know better than us. So if we nominate someone who they don't like, who they don't think is electable, well, they want the power to undermine our will. That's exactly what this is about. And they are openly flaunting it. They're not even anonymously telling us how outraged they are. They're openly saying someone who is elected, a representative in Congress is saying they're disenfranchising us. I mean, it's just outrageous. You're not disenfranchised if you no longer have the ability to disenfranchise voters. In fact, if you have the ability to disenfranchise voters or even tip the scales against what they want, even just a little bit, you're the bad guy. It's not the other way around. Trying to make the DNC and the Democratic Party more equitable and more open to average voters, that's something that will behoove you. You want to win, don't you? This will make you more electable. This will make the party more marketable because currently you guys rigged the primary in 2016. You fucked this all over. And the fact that you haven't done dramatic reforms, the fact that Tom Perez didn't get in there and cleaned house is outrageous in and of itself. Now, he kind of cleaned house. He purged progressives and replaced them with establishment shills. But nonetheless, this is a step in the right direction and it doesn't go far enough, but they're still angry at the prospect of them moving towards them being more democratic. I don't know what to say. These people, they have to lose their jobs. They're so painfully out of touch. They are incapable of representing the public. They don't represent us through the party itself as elected members of Congress, nor do they represent us through the DNC. They just have to lose their jobs. Senator Bernie Sanders recently held an online town hall where he invited workers and CEOs of major American corporations to face off against each other where the workers would be able to voice their grievances to CEOs and they would be able to respond and hopefully pledge to make the working situation and financial situation of their workers better. But can you guess how many CEOs actually showed up to this town hall event? Not a single one. Now, this isn't too surprising, but I think it does say a lot about these CEOs. They're cowards. They're profiting off of the hard work of their employees, but they won't even face their workers in public. Now, the companies that um, employees came from included Disney, Amazon, Walmart, McDonald's, and American Airlines. Now, most of their stories were similar. They talked about how, you know, their wages just aren't high enough. They can't go out to eat. They can barely pay their rent. They struggle on a daily basis. And others talked about the working conditions. One individual from Amazon talked about how the working conditions at Amazon are so abysmal that it actually led to him being depressed to the point of him giving up his will to live. So these are some of the highlights from the town hall. I will include you with a link to the full town hall. I would encourage you to watch it because it is very insightful. Um, so here are the highlights. And then after we watch that, we'll come back and discuss. I started at Walmart in 2000. Five years after I was there, I seen a decline in how they treated workers, screaming at us in the aisles, no respect at all for us. They pride themselves on low wages on paying their workers low wages. Meanwhile, we don't even make the poverty level. I don't make $15 an hour, and I've been there 18 years. 
there's something wrong with that in our country. The turnover rate is high in all the Walmart stores across the country. Once a worker comes in and they see what it is to work there, they leave. We're understaffed, overworked, and they disrespect us. For a lot of my coworkers, they've, they've been living in their cars. A lot of people have lost their homes and they're living in motels. I've been holding on. I'm going to interrupt you because something comes to my mind. Okay. I was told, and I don't know if it's accurate, tell me if it is, that there was a tent city where workers were living in tents near Disneyland. Is that true? Does that ring a bell? Well, there was a tent city. It was a part of the homeless issue in Orange County as a whole. And I do understand that there were Disneyland workers living there. Okay. I know a lot of people who have to go to food banks. Um, I've gone to food banks myself. I always, I try to make food a priority for myself because I was always taught that that's like the foundation to your health. Right. And my family has some health issues that I don't want to have to deal with. And so I always make sure to feed myself, but that means that I'm cutting into other bills that, that I could be paying with that money. If you were caught talking to other people or um, interacting with other people, you'd get written up. The environment is just, it's very isolating. Um, it's depressing. I, I, I was spending an hour driving to work, 10 hours on the floor, and then the whole time I was there, um, you know, there's no windows, there's no, uh, it's, you're tracked every second of the day, every second that you're out there not being productive, somebody's watching you to make sure that you are still on task. And they have a number, there's like a rate that you're supposed to reach for whether you're stowing or taking items off the shelf whatever your job was for the day. And my entire, even though it was just a two month stint there, um, I was spent, even days where I thought I was doing really well, I'd come up at the end of the day about 20% short of their expected goal. It just always felt unattainable. Um, so you're just day to day struggling to hopefully not get fired. There was a point in my life where when I was working there towards the end of um, the time I was there, I was so depressed and I kept telling myself, this is, if this is the best my life is going to get, I, why, why am I even still here? And I would leave um, in such a, just a like a horrible emotional state that I'd have to leave um, because I couldn't physically be there anymore. Um, and I finally, like the second time that I had broke down uh, crying and left work because of it, I called one of my best friends and she told me if 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 you're if working there really makes you feel like this if you feel like taking your own life because of the job you're working at like don't work there that is not a there's 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 no work environment that should make you feel like that and so I, I left and I um, thank you. my current salary salary after a decade working for Piedmont is less than $14.50 an hour. I cannot make ends meet on my own without working extra hours. And on those days, I work 12-hour days. So their stories to me weren't surprising at all. As someone who came from fast food and retail, a lot of their stories are very similar. These CEOs have no regard for the well-being of their employees. They don't care at all. They treat you like prisoners. Now, I worked for Walmart temporarily, and I was immediately taken aback when 
I was hired because one of the first things I saw was an anti-union propaganda video. And what was interesting to me was that I thought there's no way that this would resonate with the other workers. So I asked some of my coworkers and I talked about like four different people and they were all anti-union. Part of it was that they they just weren't informed about the benefits unions have most of the time and how they directly impact their pay and benefits. But a lot of them just thought, I don't want them taking money out of my paycheck like taxes. And that's exactly one of the lines that Walmart used to sell it. So they're not looking out for their workers' best interests. And there were times when I worked at Walmart where me and my coworkers would be done with all of our assigned tasks and, you know, we just stop and talk for a few minutes. There would be a manager on us like stank on shit. They'd come over immediately and say, what are you doing? You're standing around? Get to work. I mean, you can't stop for a second and converse with your coworkers. God forbid you try to enjoy the time you're spending at your job. God forbid. And that's what this Amazon employee was kind of speaking to. There were no windows. We couldn't stop and talk to each other at all. They treat you like prisoners, not like employees. And the standards are always so high that you're never going to be able to meet those standards. Therefore, you're always trying to work as hard as you can. You're giving 110% and still always falling short according to these company standards. And after how much work they put in dealing with members of the public who are oftentimes very rude to them, they don't even make enough money to survive. And another common theme across, you know, these workers' stories was that they've worked for these companies in some cases more than a decade and they still have to have second and third jobs and take on extra shifts in order to make ends meet just to pay rent. Their children have to get jobs in order to help them if they're old enough to work. So the point is that it doesn't have to be this way. We live in the richest country on earth and we have people in this country who are working full time and fall under the poverty line. How ridiculously obscene is that? It used to be the case that if you worked full-time at Taco Bell, you can go to college, you could buy a house. But now, income inequality has become such a huge problem and the economy has become so rigged in favor of the wealthy that no matter what you do, it's, it's impossible to actually live comfortably for most Americans. And it goes deeper than this. In some areas of the country, Flint, Michigan... They don't even have clean water. So I watched I watched this and I couldn't help but think the American dream is dead. Now, most of us who are politically astute and who are paying attention already came to that conclusion a long time ago, but you can't help but think there's no way that working Americans can succeed and it's unfathomable that they'd even be able to thrive given the current state of our economy. They need a break. And what did Republicans and Donald Trump just do last year? They gave a tax break to the wealthy. I mean, it's, it's disgusting. But this right here is one of the consequences of capitalism. You don't get a capitalist system, an unfettered capitalist system, 
without exploitation, without oppression of the working class. So you've got to make sure that you regulate capitalism and try to push back against its inherently predatory nature. You've got to have a strong social safety net that's not just codified into law, but guaranteed by the Constitution. Otherwise, capitalism will try to attack it. Special interests will fund politicians who will do their bidding. You've got to have a system that works for workers. But currently, we don't have that. And what we have as a social safety net is being gutted and rolled back as we speak. Republicans are proposing cuts to Medicare and Medicaid and food stamps in order to fund tax cuts for the rich. It's, it's really, when you think about this, it's, it's just downright depressing. And speaking of depression, a lot of these jobs cause workers to be depressed. Now, certainly, depression is something that a lot of individuals are just genetically predispositioned to have. But these employers, they have a, a way of beating you down to the point where you, where you feel so depressed to where you're basically a robot just doing their bidding, doing what they want. But you can never appease them no matter how hard you work. And it's just disgusting. So shame on every single one of these CEOs who are mega rich, who couldn't dare to face their workers at this town hall. Why are they shielded from criticism? Why do they feel as though they're too good to face their employees? You're not better than your employees. Wealth doesn't equal worth. Face your employees. If you're going to exploit them, at least look them in the eye and explain to them that that's what you're doing, and you don't care about them. At least do that. But these are cowards. They run and hide. They, they won't even face their workers. So, again, I want to encourage people to click on the link in the description box and watch this town hall. For those of you listening on iTunes, you can find this on YouTube. I think it's incredibly insightful, but it's not going to be too surprising to a lot of us. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has promised to stop Brett Kavanaugh at all costs, but in order for him to actually be effective at doing this, he not only needs to swing at least one Republican to their side to vote against Kavanaugh, he's got to do something that I think will be even harder, and that is keep 100% of Senate Democrats unified in their opposition to Brett Kavanaugh. Now he's starting to learn the hard way that his party is a lot more far gone than he originally anticipated. I mean, he's someone who is a corporate centrist himself, but he's seeing that even the mere prospect of him whipping up their votes is outrageous to some Democrats like Joe Manchin. So as Avery Annapol of The Hill reports, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin had strong words for Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer's efforts to unify the party against President Trump's Supreme Court pick. Manchin suggested to Politico that Schumer does not have any influence over whether or not he supports Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. I'll be 71 years old in August. You're going to whip me? Kiss my you-know-what, Manchin told Politico. Politico, referring to whipping votes among the party caucus. So that's how Joe Manchin responds at the thought of Senator Chuck Schumer applying even the most minimal amount of pressure to get him to vote against Kavanaugh. He's too far gone. I mean, if you have a member of your party 
openly contemplating voting for the other party's president in 2020 or endorsing the other party's president in 2020, that individual is too far gone and you've got to reel them back in by doing things that are very unorthodox. He's not going to listen if you just resort to the normal tools that you typically would use as a leader at your disposal. If you say, well, look, you're not going to have any committee uh, appointments. He's not going to care. He's not doing shit anyway. If you just tell him, look, we're not going to endorse you. We're not going to fund you. Well, he's raising enough money from large multinational corporations to where he probably doesn't really need fundraising from the party itself. You have to get a little bit crazy here and be more unorthodox in the pressure that you exert. And it may not work. But you've got to try. If I were Chuck Schumer, I would be telling Joe Manchin, look, since you want to be a Republican anyway, we're just going to make sure that we get a real Republican. So every single day you don't commit to voting against Brett Kavanaugh, we're funding your opponent. We're giving him $1,000 every single day. And if you vote in favor of Kavanaugh, guess what we're going to do? We're going to endorse your opponent and we're going to give him $10,000. Now, even if it's the case that Chuck Schumer doesn't do this, because I don't want a Republican to win, obviously, but even if he doesn't do this, at least call Joe Manchin's bluff. Do something drastic to make sure he votes against Kavanaugh, because this is important. This will affect policy for generations. Kavanaugh is young enough to remain in the Supreme Court to do damage for 20, maybe 30 years. So if you truly care about the American people, you should do everything short of tying him up and literally threatening him. Because this can't happen. This is an individual that voted for Neil Gorsuch. So odds are he's probably going to vote for Kavanaugh because he thinks that's what West Virginians would want him to do. But that will be so problematic. I mean, for one, I don't understand why Joe Manchin hasn't just switched parties because at this point he votes more with Republicans than Democrats. So I'm not sure why he continues to pretend to be a Democrat when clearly he wants to bat for the other team and has been batting for the other team. But Joe Manchin, I mean, if if Chuck Schumer really wanted to stop Kavanaugh, you would be putting so much pressure on Joe Manchin. You'd be publicly shaming him every single day on news outlets, cable news shows, but I don't know if Chuck Schumer has the spy needed to get someone like Joe Manchin to acquiesce. I just don't. And I hope I'm wrong, but I really don't think that's going to be the case. Now, look, there are other Democrats who are vocalizing their contempt for the mere prospect of Chuck Schumer trying to just persuade them to maybe not vote in favor of this disastrous Supreme Court pick. Quote, my decision won't have anything to do with Chuck Schumer, Senator Joe Donnelly told Politico. Donnelly, in addition to Manchin and Senator Heidi Heitkamp, all voted in support of Neil Gorsuch. Senator Claire McCaskill told Politico that Schumer knows better than to try to pressure her to vote in a certain way. Quote, he doesn't come to me and say, you've got to vote with us on this. He knows I'll tell him where to take a flying leap, she said. I'm going to do what I think is right. It has nothing to do with the party. So they're saying here, no matter what Chuck Schumer does, not going to have an impact whatsoever on their decision, which tells me that Chuck Schumer isn't doing enough. He's probably just 
tepidly saying, Oh, will you please not vote for Kavanaugh? Can we please remain united? Oh, please, 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 pretty please. That's not going to work, Chuck. It's not going to work at all. You have rebellious Democrats, basically children, who you need to discipline in order to get them to listen, and the nerve of them. Claire McCaskill said, Chuck Schumer knows better than to come to me, Claire McCaskill. She also states, he knows I'll tell him to take a flying leap. So understand, Chuck, they don't respect you. I don't respect you either, so I can get why it's easy for them to be openly insubordinate and tell the press, I don't give a fuck what this guy says. If he tries to tell me to vote a certain way, I'm going to tell him to go fuck himself. They can do that, Chuck, because you're a feckless leader and simply politely asking them to please not fuck over the party's base for decades to come. That's not going to be enough. They need to be disciplined, reined in, withhold funding, withhold endorsements, go crazy on them to get them to not vote in favor of Kavanaugh. Because, again, the extent to which this would be an unmitigated disaster can't even be comprehended. It can. If he's confirmed, I mean, I don't even know what to say. It's going to further ruin the country. So you've got to stop this, but they're they're openly defying you, Chuck. Do something. Don't let them get away with this. Shame them. Withhold funding. And if you have to, threaten and maybe even possibly fund their opponents. Because this cannot stand. If they openly defy you and get away with it, guess what? You're no longer a leader because other Democrats are going to do it because they know that they can get away with it. I mean, I shouldn't be having to educate Chuck Schumer on how to be a leader. You have to just be a leader, Chuck. You have to. So there's a new song by Drake called In My Feelings that is off of his Scorpion album recently released. And the song itself kind of sparked this viral trend where individuals film themselves dancing to it. Now, of course, um, one Democrat decided to capitalize on this viral trend and decided to do this In My Feelings challenge in order to encourage millennials to vote. And now, of course, we have the headline from CNN, Representative Beattie dances to Drake's In My Feelings to promote millennial voting. And of course, I do have the video for you, but you can kind of get a glimpse of what to expect by the thumbnail. And uh, this image right here, she's dabbing. <laughs> so um, here it is. How do you do, fellow kids? What? If she were just doing this to have fun, I wouldn't have talked about it. But she's doing this as a means of encouraging millennials to get out and vote. Now, the party itself, <laughs> it's been evident that they have a problem 
talking to millennials. They don't know how to get us to vote. They don't know how to speak to us in a way that is digestible for us. So they think they have to do things like this to be relatable to us, to prove to us that they're hip and they're cool. So that might make us vote for them. Um, and she's not the first one to do this. Do we all remember what Hillary Clinton did to try to encourage us to vote for her? I don't know who created Pokemon Go. But I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. How we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. Yeah. So the party has struggled and they continue to struggle to reach out to millennials. And I want to make this video because I think that Representative Beattie needs to know that we're not that difficult. We're really not. You can speak to us on the level of policy. That's what we understand. All we want is for you to vocally advocate for bold, progressive policies, and we will come out and vote. If you look back to 2008, millennials came out and voted in droves for Obama because he ran as a progressive. Now, it turns out he was lying to us and he was actually... A moderate Republican in actuality, but nonetheless, he ran as a progressive and that excited millennials. All you have to do is talk policy to us and we'll come out. That's it. That's all you've got to do. It's that simple. We're pretty easy to please. But instead, they don't know this. So what do they do? They tell us to Pokemon go to the polls and they do the in my feelings challenge and they dab. Uh, and I love how it was, it was evident to me that she was using iMovie because she used the, um, the little graphic where the words fly in this one right here that you're seeing. I'll add it in post. <laughs> um, I don't get why, why there were so many cuts, but look, I, I don't want to be too down on her because she actually is one of the better politicians in the Democratic Party. She co-sponsored John Conyers Medicare for All bill, HR 676. So, She's already on the right side, at least when it comes to one policy that would certainly excite progressives. Why not just tell us that? Say, look, millennials, get out and vote for me. I support Medicare for all. A vote for me is a vote for Medicare for all. I will vociferously advocate for Medicare for all. If you send me back to Congress, guess what else I'm going to ad advocate for? Ending the wars, ending the drug wars, legalizing marijuana, tuition-free public colleges and universities. These are things I'm in favor of. Vote for me. Get out and vote. Show me that you support me because I support you. These are things that you can do if you want millennials to vote for you. You don't have to stoop to this to, to, to get us to vote for you. It just comes off as disingenuous and pandering. Now, look, again, if she were just doing this for the fun of it, I wouldn't have a problem with it, but because she's using this as a strategy to energize millennials, it communicates to me that I've got to come out and tell her, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. She's clearly out of her element. You don't have to do things like this. I, I'm not expecting you to dance and do the challenge and do the Tide Pod challenge, whatever challenge is going on. I don't, I don't even know. I'm so out of touch with um, the fellow kids, but you don't have to do anything like that. You just have to vocalize your support for policies we support. And 
that's it. We we have to believe that you genuinely will fight for these policies. But I mean, if you co-sponsor HR 676, it's kind of a, a big deal for us. Tell us about that. I mean, I just don't know what to say. I was I was disappointed when I saw this because I, I thought, oh, they, they still don't get it. They, they don't get it. They still think they have to do things like this to pander to us and uh, get us to support them. When, again, I think that they're overcomplicating what they think they need to do. They think, oh, well, I have to reach out to millennials by, you know, doing this event where I play Fortnite or some shit like that. You don't have to do that again for the thousandth time. It's been a main theme, you know, on this podcast. Talk policy to us and we understand that. Give us details about policies the party will codify into law if they're elected that will have a concrete impact on our lives. It's really that simple. I'm not lying. It's that simple. And there's evidence. Look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She talked about policy. She kicked Joe Crowley's ass. It's that simple. I promise you. In a world of politics dominated by the strange, the deranged, and outright insane, we'll now take a moment to shine a light on the craziest of what politics has to offer. This is your weekly Dose of Stupidity. Sorry, sir, because you are going to the UK. What will be your message on Brexit? Well, Brexit is, uh, you know, I've been reading a lot about Brexit over the last couple of days, and it seems to be turning a little bit differently, where they're getting at least partially involved back with the uh, European Union. Uh, I have no message. It's not for me to say. I own a lot of property there. I'm going to Scotland while I wait for the meeting. I have uh, Turnberry in Scotland, which is a magical place, one of my favorite places. I'm going there for two days while I wait for the Monday meeting. Uh, but it's, it's not for me to say what they should be doing in the UK. I have great friendships. My mother was born in Scotland. Uh, I have great friendships over there. We have a wonderful ambassador, Woody Johnson. And uh, he's doing it. By the way, Woody's doing a great job. But it's, it's not for me to say. I'd like to see him be able to work it out so it could go quickly, whatever they work out. Is it heartbreaking? Oh, hard Brexit, I said. I thought you said it was heartbreaking. I said, that might be going a little bit too far. Heartbreaking. Is it heartbreaking? A lot of things are heartbreaking. No, I, I, would, I would say that, you know, Brexit is Brexit. It's not like, uh, I guess when you, when you use the term hard Brexit, I assume that's what you mean. The people voted uh, to break it up. So I would imagine that's what they'll do, but maybe they're taking a little bit of a different uh, route. So I don't know if that's what they voted for. I just want the people to be happy. They're great people. And I do think I have, sure, there'll be protests, because there are always protests. But I think there, there were protests the night of the election both ways. But in the end, uh, we got a, you know, 206 electoral, 306 electoral votes. And one state that, you know, is interesting. One of the states we won, Wisconsin. I didn't even realize this until fairly recently. That was the one state that Ronald Reagan didn't win when he ran the board his second time. He didn't win Wisconsin, and we won Wisconsin. So, you know, we, we, had, a, we had a great night. Uh, protests, there, there might be protests. But I believe that the people in the U.K., Scotland, Ireland, as you know, have property in Ireland. There's property all over. I think that those people, uh, they like me a lot. 
And they agree with me on immigration. And I think that's why you have Brexit in the first place, because of immigration. Yes, ma'am. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. You are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. Stupidity. Well, that's all that I've got for you guys today. Thank you so much if you've made it this far in the program. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanistreport. Sorry for not having a guest this week. Uh, next week, I will have Kenneth Maya on the program. It's going to be fascinating. So that's all I've got for you guys today. I will see you next week. Take care.